Let's pray before we dive into Psalm 2 and ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Father, you are holy, you are mighty, you are sovereign, and we confess that we are none of those things. We need you. We need you to open our eyes to see you in your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in these pages. Please cause it to affect our hearts and our lives through the power of your spirit. Draw us closer to you and closer to each other as we meditate on the truths of this psalm and how you are sovereign and we are not. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm is about the Messiah's reign and about our response to his rule over our lives. There is no doubt about how Jesus is depicted in Psalm 2. He is the Son of God who is sovereign over all creation and sovereign over each and every one of us. As for the emotions evoked in this psalm, well, it could go one of two ways. The description of the rebellious and the ultimate sovereignty of Jesus evokes either indignation and dismissal or humility and the fear of the Lord. When you read this psalm, your emotions can reveal whether your heart belongs to Jesus or not. The psalmist addresses kings and rulers of the earth. And last time I checked, none of us were kings and rulers. But all of us, from time to time, considered ourselves the rulers, the kings of our own lives. We set up our little kingdoms, and we go to war with any other kingdom that threatens our rule. So we can all be labeled kings or rulers. 
we can all apply this psalm personally. Now, the structure of Psalm 2 is rather straightforward. There are four sections, each containing three verses, and those four sections follow a pattern called a chiasm. Chiasm is kind of like a palindrome, where it's the same forward and backward. The chiastic pattern here is A, B, B, A. The outer two A sections address mankind, referring to them as kings or rulers, and the middle two B sections address God and his sovereignty over mankind. And the flow of the psalm begins describing man's selfish rebellion in verses 1 through 3, then moves to God's severe reply in verses 4 through 6, then it describes God's sovereign rule in verses 7 through 9, and finally, it exhorts man's submissive response in verses 10 through 12. The author also employs the use of parallelism throughout the psalm, basically restating things in a slightly different way to narrow in on the precise meaning that he intends. So the first section is about man's selfish rebellion in verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist begins with a rhetorical question. He knows the answer, but he asks all the same to highlight the foolishness of the answer. There is no good answer to the question of why people rage and plot against God. Now, the word translated as rage here carries the idea of tumult or being agitated, much like a riot or a protest. People are dissatisfied with the way things are, so they get together and they voice their opinion, sometimes quite violently. And the word translated as plot is not so much about planning as it is about voicing discontentment through muttering and grumbling. Now, this muttering and grumbling would have the desired effect of enacting a change in one's circumstances, like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But all of these riots and muttering discontent is useless in changing the situation because the thing that everyone is raging and grumbling about is God's sovereign rule over their lives. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. They all conspire together to rid themselves of God's oppressive rule over their lives. I mean, look at what they say to each other about God's sovereignty. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They see God's sovereignty as stifling. They see his rule as oppressive, not allowing them to live as they would like to live. They think that they could do a better job ruling than God could. If only God were not in charge, then I could do whatever I want. I would be free to pursue my passion. Do some of those thoughts sound familiar? Many people reject the gospel because they think Christianity is just a list of rules to abide by, which hinder people from being who they really are. 
Many Christians even ignore God's sovereignty and live however they want Monday through Saturday, and then they clean up their act on Sunday and come to church only to go right back to living for themselves the rest of the week. This ought not to be so. The world lives like this because to them God's sovereignty is oppressive, but to those who know and embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, His sovereignty is comfort and freedom. Now remember the rhetorical question that highlighted the foolishness of the situation. Why are you living as if God is not sovereign? Why are you grumbling and throwing a tantrum over God's rule over your life? It's foolishness. The reason it's so foolish is because no one is ever really in charge of their life. God is sovereign whether you like it or not. And those who live like he isn't sovereign are living in a delusion. So this first section, it showed how foolish it is to reject God's rule and mutter and rail against his sovereign authority because he is sovereign whether we like it or not, and he is better qualified to rule over your life than you are. Now the second section is about God's severe response to man's foolishness in verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now notice the parallel structure with the first section. Man's foolishness is met with the Lord laughing and ridiculing their foolishness. Man conspiring against God is met with the Lord terrifying them in his wrath and fury. And the man saying, we will be the king of our own lives, is met with the Lord saying, my son is king. God's response is severe, but rightly so. The foolishness of thinking we could rule our own lives better than God could is most worthy of ridicule and God's wrath. The word derision is not very common in our modern middle-class English. At least it's not common in our Vallejo vocabulary. Uh, derision basically means ridicule or mockery, like watching the world's dumbest criminals or reading about the Darwin Awards, those who have died in the most foolish ways. We're absolutely familiar with the Lord's response to this foolishness. He laughs at them, though he's not amused. He laughs as though saying to himself, what, are you kidding me? How foolish can you get? It's clear that he's not amused when he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. But why is the Lord so angry at this foolishness? We may think this is like watching a very small dog barking wildly as if he could do anything about a perceived intruder. It's foolish for the dog to act that way because he can't do anything. We may even laugh and ridicule the dog for acting so foolishly. But what if that small dog ran over and bit your toddler? 
Now the cute little dog with Napoleon syndrome is the object of your wrath and condemnation. Now, I am not comparing the Lord Jesus to a toddler. I'm simply making an illustration to show that an attack against someone we love, even if it's done in foolishness, evokes strong protective wrath within us. Man's foolishness in this psalm is a direct attack on the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father's wrath against this foolishness is just and right. Mutiny will not be tolerated. There will be no coup to overthrow Jesus as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Though mankind may desire to unseat Jesus as king and act as if he is not so the sovereign ruler of everything, he will remain and he will return to rule with a rod of iron. The first section was about man's selfish rebellion. The second section about God's severe response. Now the third section is about God's sovereign rule. Verses seven through nine. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we have a, uh, a depiction of an inter-Trinitarian conversation. God the Father speaks to God the Son in eternity past, setting him up definitively as the owner and ruler of all the nations to judge as he sees fit. The word for decree refers to something that is appointed like an inheritance or something that is prescribed like a ruling on the way things should be. The psalmist goes on to describe the son's inheritance and his ownership of the nations. So it makes sense to see the decree as appointing the nations as the son's inheritance. But he goes on to prescribe exactly what the son will do with his inheritance as a ruling on the way things should or will be. So the psalmist has actually used a play on words here. He used one word to mean two different yet similar things. This decree is both appointing an inheritance and prescribing what will happen with that inheritance. But the part of the section that most people focus on is the second half of verse seven, where the father says to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's because this verse is one of the clearest depictions in the Old Testament of the relationship between God the father and God the son. It's also quoted in the New Testament as proof that Jesus is God. Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch Pisidia in Acts 13. Ryan read a portion of that earlier in our service. In that sermon, he used Psalm 2 verse 7 in conjunction with Isaiah 55 3 and Psalm 16 10 to prove that Jesus' resurrection means that he is the Son of God, the Messiah they had been waiting for. Psalm 2-7 is also quoted twice in the book of Hebrews, once in chapter 1, verse 5, and again in chapter 5, verse 5. In Hebrews 1-5, the author used this quote to show how Jesus is better than the angels by virtue of his relationship with the Father. 
And in Hebrews 5.5, he used this quote to show that Jesus was appointed to his position as great high priest, just like his inheritance was appointed to him as ruler of everything. It's humbling to consider all the implications of those words. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. In the New Testament, those words imply Jesus' deity, his supremacy, and his appointed position of mediator between God and man. But we cannot stretch those words to mean something they were not intended to mean. Some have concluded that if the Father has begotten the Son, then there was a time that the Son did not exist. That view is called Arianism. And this is one of the primary verses that they use to try to prove their heresy. Now, there's a whole host of passages that prove that heresy wrong. So being begotten must not be restricted to time and space when speaking of the eternal and infinite Godhead. This is speaking to Jesus' appointed authority to rule and judge rather than simply coming into existence. The Father appointed the Son as ruler, saying, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father loves the Son so much. All the Son has to do is ask and the Father gives him everything. Jesus is the ruler of everyone, the nations, and everything, the ends of the earth, because the Father loves him so much and has given it to him. This is not to say that the Father is the rightful owner of everyone and everything, and he gave it to the Son as some sort of hand-me-down inheritance. God's creation is not a cast-off, second-rate gift. It was prepared for the sole purpose of giving it to the Son as a gift of love. The Son has always been the rightful ruler of all creation, as appointed by the Father out of love for His Son. But what's the Son going to do with a selfish and rebellious inheritance? He's going to judge it and purify it with a rod of iron. The word for rod in the Old Testament, has referred to a shepherd's staff, to a rod used for striking someone in punishment, or to a scepter as a symbol of kingship. In the context of Psalm 2, it could refer to all three of these things. Jesus is the good shepherd who uses his iron rod to defend his sheep. Jesus will judge and use his rod of iron to punish all who foolishly rebel against him. Jesus is the rightful ruler of everyone and everything, and his iron rod dis- as his iron rod displays for all to see. Now, when the psalmist says that the sun will break them with a rod of iron, the image that immediately comes to my mind is breaking an obstinate and, obstinate and rebellious horse. But that's not what the Hebrew word means. It simply means to break loudly and violently, kind of like a branch being broken off of a tree. This brings to mind what Jesus said in John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. It also brings to mind what Paul said in Romans 11, 17 through 22. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, these are warnings meant to keep us from presuming our standing with God like the Jews had done. Jesus' judgment is as the lopping off of whole branches loudly and violently, as a display of his righteousness and as a motivation to humility and submission to his righteous rule. Like a potter's vessel, he dashes them to pieces. He has the right to break them because he made them. It is not for us to question whether it is righteous or not to smash a particular vessel, especially when the one who made the vessel is the one doing the smashing. Paul also picks up on this theme in Romans 9, 20 to 23, he says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God's sovereign rule, in light of man's selfish rebellion, is one of displaying his wrath against sin and his power over all creation alongside the riches of his grace and mercy. He decides who receives his grace and mercy and everyone else receives the just punishment for their selfish rebellion, being dashed to pieces and cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Now, what should the response be to such a pronouncement of God's sovereign rule over everything? We saw man's selfish rebellion in the first section, God's severe response in the second section, and God's sovereign rule in the third section. Now, the fourth section is about man's submissive response in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember, we have all tried at some point to be ruler of our own lives, so these instructions to the kings of the earth are for us as well. Here the psalmist gives us a string of imperatives, things we should do in response to the truths laid out early in the psalm. We must be wise and warned in verse 10. These verbs carry the idea of having understanding and allowing oneself to be instructed. It's pride that keeps a person from understanding that Jesus is Lord. It's pride that refuses to receive instruction. We must go to God's word and learn and remember that he is Lord, not us. We must remember and humble ourselves under the sovereign rule of Jesus. We must serve the Lord and rejoice in verse 11. We must not serve ourselves, but the Lord Jesus. How are we to serve him? In fear. The fear of the Lord is the emotional response to understanding God's power and might that causes us to love, serve, and submit to Him. Our understanding of who God is should produce in us a kind of fear that longs to be near God and do whatever He would have us do for Him and for His glory. His rule is so perfect and he takes such good care of his children that we rejoice. Now this rejoicing is not a half-hearted applause. It's a guttural cry of triumph. Like when your team wins the championship. You cry out so loudly and forcefully that your whole body trembles. This is the kind of rejoicing that we will be doing for all of eternity because Jesus has won the victory over sin and death and he has triumphed over our sinful heart and reconciled us to God. We were dead, but now we're not only alive, we're adopted into God's family. We're accepted and loved so much that God would give us his best to win us back. Amen. Yeah, that should at least get an amen, if not rejoicing with trembling. <laughs> we must kiss the sun as a sign of fidelity in verse 12. The kiss that the psalmist refers to as a sign of submission to his rule over our life. Now notice that these three imperatives are the three ways that we are to worship God. We worship him by remembering who he is, by serving him, and by submitting to him. Remembrance, service, and submission. Ryan's laughing because that's a part of the worship class at, at Cornerstone. Our response to these truths is to worship God. The final imperative, to submit, comes with consequences for refusing to submit. The consequences include angering the Son and perishing in the way. 
The reason for the consequences is that the son's wrath against those who do not submit to his rule over their lives is quickly or easily kindled. It doesn't take much to stoke his wrath. Now, this is not to say that Jesus has a short fuse. Many of us have had interactions with people who have short fuses. It's unpleasant to be around them because you never know what will set them off. Jesus is not like that. He's compassionate and kind, full of steadfast love and mercy. He loved you enough to go to the cross for you. But to those who have rejected him, he will execute perfect justice and pour out his wrath. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 describes him as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Some may think that there's a kind of weight comparison of sorts when we arrive at the judgment seat, that our good deeds and our bad deeds will be weighed against each other to see if we're deemed good people or bad people. There is no comparison when it comes to this judgment. Either your sin is forgiven or it's not. If it's not forgiven, then even the smallest, seemingly insignificant sin stokes God's wrath because it's ultimately a rejection of Jesus as Lord. The only way to avoid God's wrath is to do what the last line of this psalm says, take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God's wrath is coming on all of mankind because we've all sinned. We're all sinners. The only way to escape God's wrath is to take refuge in Jesus. God became flesh and lived among us, and then he died on a cross as the perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin and reconcile us back to God. Then he rose from the dead three days later, securing our eternal life with him. If you have faith in Jesus to save you from sin and death, then he is your refuge. Submit to him and run to him for cleansing from your sin. Well, now that we've walked through each of the sections of this psalm, I want to read the whole thing again so we can see how each section fits with the others. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember that the emotions this psalm evokes can go one of two ways. Does this psalm evoke worship in your heart? Or does it evoke indignation? When you read of God's sovereign rule and righteous judgment, do you respond in submission to his authority, serving him in fear and rejoicing with trembling? I pray that it causes you to worship in remembrance, service, and submission rather than digging in your heels in selfish rebellion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for showing us who you are and how we are to respond to your sovereignty over our lives. I pray that we would remember who you are every day this week and submit to your authority over our lives rather than living like we're the ruler of our own little kingdom. Please give us teachable hearts, humble enough to receive instruction well, and to serve you in whatever capacity you call us to. Father, give us boldness to tell others about who you are and what you have done for us in sending your Son to die and rise again so that we could run to him for refuge from judgment. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.